With Moses dead, it's finally time for the Israelites to enter the land of Canaan. They are fortunate to have a strong leader who has lived and worked alongside Moses at leadership level for decades. The Israelites believe that God promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, and Joshua is not one to deviate from this plan, ensuring that Israel attempts to establish its nation according to God's heavenly guidelines. His book is a chronicle of the attacks, ambushes and battles that take place as Israel hopes to conquer what it sees as the promised land, ending the nomadic odyssey which began back in the age of the patriarchs and securing itself a permanent physical home. As for the book itself, die-hard Bible believers are certain that it is an eyewitness account written by Joshua himself. Others see this as untenable and accept that it must have been written considerably later, perhaps at the same time as the book of Deuteronomy during the Babylonian captivity in the 6th or 7th century BC. Bible fans also get excited because this is the first time that their story collides with written history in other people's cultures. Egyptian tablets record marauding attacks on the lands to the north by a tribe called the Habiru. Are these the Hebrews coming across the River Jordan under the command of Joshua? Back at Beth Peor on the banks of the river, two million people ready themselves to move south. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 52, The Hall House. this is exciting. We're about to leave the Torah, the first five books of the law, behind us and move into a whole new section of the Bible. While more law giving does take place in the book of Joshua, it's the action sequences that make it such a thrill ride. For those of you new to this podcast, we're on a slow tour of the whole Bible that began 51 episodes ago at the start of the book of Genesis. We're in no hurry to get to the end. There are plenty of podcasts that will get you through the Bible in just one year. There are also plenty that will tell you what to think. I'm keen to leave that bit up to you. All I do is look at the Bible as a book and explain the bits that Christians get excited about because these underpin their faith, as well as the bits that atheists roll their eyes at because they are both unprovable and scientifically impossible. If you're deeply religious and feel that this podcast is shallow and offensive to your beliefs, I apologise. My own belief is that the Bible belongs to everyone, not just religious people, and I'm beyond happy that so many non-believers are listening into this. That said, let's head back to the river and see what Joshua plans for his first move. promised to Abraham as a country that flows with milk, honey and other good things, the lush fertile coastal plain that spreads east from the Mediterranean Sea to the River Jordan is finally ready to be settled by Israel. Thanks to its proliferation of seaports, Canaan, at the time that the Israelites want to conquer it, is home to skilled merchants and exports oil, cedarwood and wine to Egypt and Greece, bringing back Egyptian linen and Greek pottery. The name Canaan means land of purple, and the Canaanites trade in the valuable purple dyes much loved by kings and other rulers. The locals are also famous for their craftsmanship. It is the Canaanites who build and design Solomon's temple, and Canaanites even invent the first alphabet with letters that are recognised today. 
In fact, papyrus scrolls imported from Egypt to the Canaanite port of Byblos were called Biblia, giving us the word bibliophile and Bible. With everything now in place for an assault on Canaan, Joshua sends out the order to get everyone ready to cross the river. He reminds the tribes who will be remaining this side of the Jordan to leave their family and livestock behind, but to send their fighting men across the river with everyone else, as the conquest of Canaan needs to be a team effort. The response from these tribes is emphatic. The leaders tell Joshua that whatever he orders them to do, they will do, and wherever he tells them to go, they will go. Joshua is just as much their leader as Moses was, they tell him, and curse anyone who is thinking of rebelling against his authority. Now that he has assumed supreme command of the nation of Israel, Joshua prepares for a full-on assault of Canaan. Before he attacks, he sends spies into the gateway city of Jericho to see how the land lies. It's no surprise that the two men make a beeline for a whorehouse where they find a woman called Rahab. As a prostitute, Rahab will know the mood of the city better than most, having slept with so many of its men. Given its commanding position on the Jordan at the border between Canaan and Moab, it's highly likely that Old Testament Jericho is a fort rather than a conventional city. This explains why there might have been brothels here, and the city will have had plenty of travellers and military personnel rather than civilians when Joshua prepares to blast through its walls with his Israelite army. Rahab's den of vice is probably an inn that is built into the wall that surrounds the city of Jericho. It is here that she assures the men sent by Joshua that the city is utterly terrified of the mass of Israelites camped over the hill, especially as the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea 40 years earlier and the emphatic defeat of the Amorite kings Sihon and Og are already legendary. Unfortunately, the spies have been spotted entering the building, and when the king of Jericho sends soldiers to arrest them, Rahab convinces them that the men they are looking for have long since left the city. In reality, she has hidden them under bundles of flax on the roof of her brothel. The soldiers buy Rahab's story that the men have already left and hurry off in hot pursuit, shutting the city gates behind them. With the spies now unable to leave the city, Rahab has the upper hand and cleverly bags a deal with them that, should Israel choose to destroy Jericho, it will spare her and her family. The men agree and are able to escape from Rahab's window, descending the city wall using a rope and a basket. The men give Rahab a scarlet cord to tie in her window and tell her to make sure that it is visible and that her entire family are in the house when they return. Otherwise, they cannot be accountable for the terror that might be unleashed. Some believe that the red cord in the window is a precursor to brothels using red lights to tell customers that they are open for business. Despite being a pagan Gentile, Rahab acknowledges the God of Israel and, in a dramatic turnaround for her family, her son Boaz becomes the great-grandfather of King David, a direct ancestor of Joseph, the father of Jesus. She tells the men to run for the hills and remain there for three days until the search has been called off before returning to the Israelite camp. After lying low in open country for the requisite time, the spies return to Joshua and assure him that God has ensured victory over Jericho. The exact words they use to describe the locals' current mindset is they are melting in fear. 
confident that Jericho is winnable, Joshua announces that the assault on Canaan will begin in three days' time. He reminds those tribes that plan to settle east of the Jordan that they are still needed to fight alongside their brothers until all potential enemies have been subdued. The signal to begin the troop movement will be when the Kohathite clan from the tribe of Levi lift the sacred gilded chest known as the Ark of the Covenant and begin walking towards the border. For those of you new to this podcast and or the Bible, the Ark is the box in which are kept the stone tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments and in which the ancient Israelites believed God also lived. The rest of Israel is to hang back around 1,000 yards and then follow behind. The people are told to consecrate themselves in readiness for the attack. In other words, they must clean themselves and their clothing, but must also purify their hearts and minds so that their focus is on serving God. At the allotted time, the ark is raised and the priests set off for the river. Flowing 165 miles south to the Dead Sea from its source in the snows of Mount Hermon in Lebanon, and creating a natural border between the Sinai wilderness and the Promised Land, the Jordan is the most famous waterway in Israel, flowing all the way into the New Testament, where Jesus is baptised here by his cousin John. According to the Bible account, Joshua is told by God that when he reaches the river, he must stand in the water. Here, God will demonstrate to the people that Joshua is Moses' rightful successor and that he is with him. Joshua orders the Israelites to pick one man from each tribe, but fails to explain what these men are expected to do until later. Far from being a trickling stream, the Jordan in flood is a raging torrent and will no doubt have caused the Israelites considerable concern when they realise that they have to cross it in order to enter Canaan. The expanse of fast-flowing water measures around 100 feet across, and without bridges or tunnels, the people need a more creative way of entering into enemy territory. Don't worry if your brain doesn't work in imperial measurements, I put the conversions in the show notes. Bolstered by God's belief in him, Joshua announces that the river will stop as soon as the priests step into the water, allowing the entire nation of Israel to cross. The people follow their priests at a distance and, sure enough, no sooner have the holy men set foot in the Jordan than the water piles up like some kind of static tsunami, allowing them to carry the ark across the exposed riverbed. Once Israel's holy men are halfway across, they stop and remain where they are until the entire Israelite population has reached the other side. God then tells Joshua that one man from each of the twelve tribes should take a stone from the middle of the Jordan and use the rocks to create a memorial on dry land to remind them of the miracle that just happened. Under the leadership of Joshua, the people hurry across the river. Among them, the tribes of Reuben, Gad and Manasseh who have pledged to fight alongside their fellow Israelites. The book relates how the people remain in awe of their new leader for the rest of his life, just as they did with Moses. Back in the river, the entire population of Israel makes it to the other side. Everyone, that is, except the priests carrying the ark, who remain rooted in the shadow of the Jordan's mounting floodwaters. Crediting Joshua's next move to God's instructions, the book describes how he commands his priests to continue their crossing with the ark. Only when the priests too have reached the other side do the river's waters begin flowing again. At the place where they first make landfall in Canaan, they set up the twelve stones reclaimed from the riverbed. 
The date is recorded, the 10th day of the first month, just five days short of the 40th anniversary of their escape from Egypt. Joshua tells them that the pile of stones is a memorial so that all the peoples of the earth will always know that God is powerful and that they themselves will remember to honour him. It is a triumphant moment for Joshua and a clear sign to the nation of Israel that he is indeed Moses' rightful heir. Parting the waters of a river is a stunt only Moses and Aaron could have pulled off and, knowing that Joshua is God's representative on earth, no doubt encourages the Israelites enormously as they push on into Canaan. The Israelites' miraculous crossing of the mighty river has put the fear of God into some of the local kingdoms. What better time to perform and recover from surgery? Israel's camp is at a place called Gilgal, and it is here that they have set up the 12 stones recovered from the river as a lasting memorial to their miraculous entry into their new country. With the locals quaking in their boots and believing God to be in charge of his to-do list, Joshua takes the opportunity to make knives out of flint to circumcise every man and boy in the camp. Because the new generation of Israelites born in the wilderness had stopped circumcising their baby boys, Joshua wants to make sure that every man and child arriving in Canaan has been through the procedure. Fortunately, enemy nations are too scared to attack them, giving Israel's men of fighting age time to get their mojo back after their surgery, which would have been carried out without anaesthetic or antiseptic. However, flint blades are seen as better for surgery, as they are less prone to infection problems and easier to clean. Once everyone is properly healed, the Israelites celebrate Passover, using grain from Canaan to bake bread. The very next day, the manna which has been sustaining them for the past 40 years stops appearing. Finally, Israel is self-sufficient. They have obeyed the command to be circumcised. Those who missed the parting of the Red Sea have witnessed the miracle of the Jordan. Israel is ready to take on anyone who stands in its way. Rahab is fortunate to have been tipped off about the impending attack on her city as no fortification is going to stand in the way of two million people who believe that Canaan has been promised to them by God. Joshua has no idea what God's plan is, but when he is at the outskirts of Jericho, he sees a man with a drawn sword in his hand. Unsure as to whether the man is on the side of Israel or its enemies, Joshua asks him. The man claims he is neither, but that he is, quote, commander of the army of the Lord, and orders Joshua to remove his shoes because he is on holy ground. The message is clear. God is in control of the battle ahead, and all Joshua has to do to secure victory is to follow orders. Who this man is has led to much debate in Bible circles. While some see him simply as a vision or an angel, others see him as the mysterious God-man, the pre-Jesus physical incarnation of God last seen guiding the Israelites across the Red Sea after the escape from Egypt. This version of God appears to have no place in the New Testament concept of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Quartet doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Back on the plain of Jericho, news has spread that Joshua's army is on its way and the city is in complete lockdown. No one leaves and the gates are barred to any new arrivals. God reassures Joshua that Jericho is his for the taking, but the attack will be an unorthodox one. Rather than besiege the city, then lob burning sulphur over the battlements, 
all he has to do is circle its walls with his army once a day for six days while Israel's priests blow their trumpets. On day seven, a single long trumpet blast will be the signal for Israel's 40,000-strong army to shout as loudly as it can, at which point the city walls will collapse and Joshua's soldiers can go in and clean up. With an armed guard going before the ark and a rear guard behind it, the march around Jericho's perimeter wall begins. The soldiers are under strict instructions not to let rip any kind of war cry, and they circle the city in silence. The same ritual continues for six days, with the men returning to the Israelite camp every evening. Given that the ark joins in the parade, the suggestion is that God himself is besieging the city. On day seven, Israel marches seven times around Jericho, and on the seventh circuit, the priests blow the long blast. Joshua orders his people to shout, telling them that God has given them the city. There are a few bits of housekeeping before they do so. No one at the home of Rahab the prostitute may be harmed, and no idols are to be taken back to the Israelite camp, as they will defile it. The order to protect a prostitute and her family might have raised a few eyebrows among those troops who don't know the whole story, but Joshua appears to command the same level of respect as Moses, and as the trumpets sound, his men raise their voices in an almighty roar. Despite being around six feet thick and over 20 feet high, the noise is too much for Jericho's walls to take and they collapse, allowing the Israelites to pour in and ransack the city. The army destroys every living thing and amidst the mayhem, Joshua finds the two spies who originally scouted out the city and orders them to locate Rahab and rescue her and her family. The prostitute and her people are initially taken to a specially designated location outside of the Israelite camp, the sole survivors of the carnage. Despite later integrating into Israel, Rahab's family is pagan, which is why they are initially kept separate from the Israelite camp. Meanwhile, their city is torched and all precious metals are collected for the tabernacle treasury. Joshua then curses anyone in the future who takes it upon themselves to rebuild the city that God has destroyed. It's been a triumphant start to the conquest, but Jericho is just one border town. The entire land of Canaan still needs to be conquered, and, as Joshua finds out next, his enemies aren't always outside the Israelite camp. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook, but make sure you spell it right. It's Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, Bible, B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. And if you like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening? Thank you. Thank you.